Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hello, it's Nancy Pop. You are now listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Time to get embarrassed with us. Welcome to another edition of Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. My name is Alon. And I'm Jimmy. We're out another week without Allison, unfortunately. She is yes. back home still with her family she's for the doing, holidays. She's doing the fam jam. Fam jam. Yeah, you can't blame her. We give ho- we give holiday breaks sometimes here. <laughs> if you want to contribute to Radio Free Brooklyn, contributions are tax deductible. Go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash pledge. Pledge a dollar. Pledge five dollars. Pledge ten dollars. <laughs> Always with the pledges, this guy. And again, you can pledge directly to our show if you'd like at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash L-A-R. This is our last episode of 2017, and we got a good one for you. Let's begin. by world-renowned storyteller Robin Beatty. You might have caught her recently at the United Solo Festival performing her show called Nancy Jerwinski. Along with serving as a teaching artist for the Brooklyn Arts Council, Robin is also a founder of storytelling ensemble Shirazad's Children and a co-founder of Bread and Roses Theater. Robin has also been a recipient of the J.J. Renault Emerging Artist Award in 2012, the National Storytelling Network Oracle Award in 2015, and the Sue Casa Grant from the City of New York just this past year. She's performed everywhere from colleges to coffee houses, libraries to festivals, and to museums and bars. You can attend her monthly storytelling series, Beatty House Storytelling Concert, at her house. Yes. And please <laughs> give a warm welcome. Thank you for being here, Robin Beatty. Thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. This was a long time coming, my dear. A long time, and we switched (laughs) tapes in the process. (laughs) So for those uh, keeping track, uh, we started here on Radio Free Brooklyn in the spring of 2016. And uh, that was when I went to Facebook and hit up a storytelling group and said, 
If anybody has any audio from their past, from their yesteryears, please reach out to me via email. And then I received an email from this lovely lady, Robin Beatty, a storyteller who uh, I guess knows fellow uh, storytellers that I'm, I've come up with and I've become friends with, David Lawson, Angel Liao. Uh, oh, yeah. And so uh, you and I started a correspondence in May of 2016. And here we are now at the end of 2017. We're finally making it happen. It's, Long time in the building. Yeah. So of uh, I guess then, that's because I kept losing the tapes. Well, what exactly were the tapes that you lost? Well, there's actually only one. I do have some others at home. I mean, who keeps tapes right now? Th- th- this guy. This guy right here. <laughs> really? <laughs> this guy, he's got tapes on tapes. Well, I have, tapes upon tapes upon I tapes. I have music tapes. I mean, I have some old music tapes that we never listened to. But the first one was called Daddy Sleeping Songs. And they were the, the Hebrew and Yiddish songs my dad used to, to sing to me and my sisters when we were little. Where did you grow up? Um, on the Jersey Shore. Your father uh, was Orthodox Jewish. No, he, we were Reformed Jewish. My, mm. my father was whatever was around. I mean, he would have been Orthodox if my mother had been Orthodox. But my mother was sort of a non-Jew who wasn't. Well, she was a Jew, but she, you know, kind of, she, she wasn't Jewish. Yeah. She, was, she was of the generation that assimilated. Were your parents both uh, first-generation Americans? Second. Second generation. Yeah. And the music that was sang on this, that uh, you you had siblings, uh, correct? Yes, yes. There were there were three others. So we sang things like Oifen Pripichuk, Brenta Fireroll, and he would. I, I don't even know the real words. On a Hayes, on the Rebbe let in Kleina Kindle, etc., etc. Did your parents speak Yiddish to you? No, they didn't speak it to each other. My mother didn't know Yiddish my, or forgot it, like my aunt forgot it. My dad spoke Yiddish with his family. My mother uh, spoke English to her grandmother, but her grandmother spoke Yiddish to her. It was that right. classic <laughs> sort of passing over and understanding each other without speaking the same right, language. Right, right, It's the same thing that you kind of had, Jimmy, too, I think, right? You and your grandmother speaking Spanish and you... Yeah, were... my grandmother would speak Spanish to me and I would speak English back to her. And I never really knew if she understand a word I was actually saying. I kind of just hoped. <laughs> just hoped and pray. Did you understand her words? Um, I did to a small degree, but she would try to, like, Americanize her Spanish to make me understand it, and it just made it was harder to hear. That's so cute. <laughs> it was. It, it, she just had, like, the grandma voice. It was one of those things that I I, I, I feel so sad that I never, I'd seen her before she passed away, like, 15 years before that, oh. you know? And she'd be on the phone, just, Jimmy! And I was like, oh, it's just crap. <laughs> you know, so, but it was. so sweet. Yeah, she lived, she lived across the country. She was sick. She could never really come out. And then. I never we had a grandma. They were all dead. You have no idea how lucky you were. <laughs> exactly, Oy. exactly. You know, I, the same way, my grandfather, I had one grandfather that had passed when I was very young i never got to meet him but everyone in my family and everyone around my neighborhood said that he was the best guy around and that you should have you oh how did you not know that? how did you never get to meet him and you're like uh so that's such like a, a weird thing in a family if you have that i had this legendary figure who was like a <laughs> pinnacle of the community passed i have a picture of me on his knee and he passed when i was a baby Aww. yeah so it's the same way no grandpa you know i need a little grandpa wisdom you know in your siblings of the oldest and youngest uh were you uh more one of the oldest or one of the youngest i was the third of four you're the third of four i was the troublemaker <laughs> i 
I didn't see myself that way. I saw myself as the truth teller. Okay. Um, so I was always there to tell the truth about whatever was going on. And like, I don't want to leave now to go to Uncle So-and-So's because I'm not ready. I mean, let's wait. Who cares? But in this world, truth-telling is troublemaking. Is a lot troublemaking, of the time. yeah. A lot of the time, especially in modern society. Can you start th- telling the truth yeah. and people are like, get this person quiet. Get him. Oh, can, I know. Can you think of a time when you were growing up that you started to realize that this was to your advantage, that you could tell the truth? Did you see something? Then you had to say something. I think it was, you know, I was involved in Vietnam War protests and feminism in its second stage. Uh, I think what I saw was things that I always knew. I was, it was easy for me to talk about because I, I had known it but not known it. Like, I didn't know about the Vietnam War, that it was bad. I mean, I thought everything America did was good because that's how I was brought up, sort of. But I was able to speak out on it. Actually, when I teach kids, that's what I say. You know, you guys who are talking during class and how much I hate it? Well, let me tell you that so many years ago, that would be me. I would be the kid that I would hate their talking. So I know there's nothing wrong with you. I know that you are good and that you really have something to say. And I really want to hear it, but after class. So if I stop you, just know that I respect you. The more you talk, the more you get out, but you can just focus it. Do you have a teacher that you remember from your childhood that really resonated? Yeah, I had a chorus teacher, and he was amazing. A chorus teacher? Chorus. Not, not even like any of the, uh, no, no. the academic teachers. It was your music teacher. I that... had an English teacher who was great, but my chorus teacher... It was middle school. It was sixth, fifth grade because our middle school went from five to eight. So we joined, I joined a chorus because I liked to sing. And I wasn't the best or anything. I didn't get any parts, which really upset me. But he wouldn't yell at us. He would just look at us. And he would always say, I'm waiting. And that man could shut a class up. I mean, there were 300 kids in the chorus. He could get us to be quiet I based my teaching on him and actually my view of art on him. He said, you know, once when I was started doing this, I had a student. She came in and she wanted to join the chorus in fifth grade. But, you know, I try you all out to see where your voices are. She couldn't sing. So I didn't let her in. Next year, she came back. Didn't let her in. Third year, she came back. I didn't let her in. Fourth year, she came back. Eighth grade. I figured if she wants it this much, I should let her in. And by the end of the year, she was singing pretty well. So I've just sort of, I've always taken that as like anybody can do it and everybody has a voice. Well, I think it's another lesson similarly that persistence pays off. My grandfather had told my father a story about how he tried to get a job and he had done these letter-writing campaigns in the days when writing letters was a thing that you did to get ahead. Oh, sure, of course. <laughs> and he'd written, handwritten, 10,000 letters oh my God. and sent them. And he would send letters to the same businesses every single day. They would get a letter every day from him for months. And then often, he said he would get hired, they would say, we just want the letters to stop. 
what do we have to do? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do anything you want. You want to work here? We can see you're trying hard. And this, and so it, funny. it meant something similarly to them. Yeah. They said, you know, at first we were just annoyed, but we thought to ourselves, gosh, this guy is still doing this. Who is this? Now we want to know who is this yeah. guy? So there was something about it all of a sudden. And they said, you know, kinda, I kind of want to know more now because you're showing me something because I'm saying no. And you're not taking that for an answer. And that is a really, really difficult quality to find in people. Yeah. To be able to handle rejection and use it to become stronger. I had a theater teacher. He was a director and he was founder of the San Francisco Mime Troupe in California, which is a political theater. And when I was, after I dropped out of my first college, I went to a college he was teaching at. And this man, he upended, another guy, he upended how I looked at art. Because he looked at, he took Shakespeare and he deconstructed it so that at the very top, and he sort of, he had people play out a scene, I don't know what, Henry the something, and on levels. So at the very top level was the king, on the second level was the prince, under that were the lords, under that were the ladies, under that was the bastard son, and under that was, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was all by class and or the class, you know, structure of that day. And so as the scene progressed, you understood what people were fighting for. I've taken that into all my work. Screws me up a little bit. <laughs> I, I tell folk, you know, I started out telling folk tales yeah. only. And it means that I can't tell stories with kings and queens. You were acting before you started storytelling. I started as an actress. When did acting begin? I don't remember ever not acting. You were performing from as young as you can remember. As, as young as I could remember. Were, and were any of your siblings all as well into the performance? Uh, my thing? younger sister, well, everybody is sort of performative in my family. Sure. We're just that kind of Jewish family, <laughs> you know, where we put on records and act yeah. them out. And we'd put on puppet shows and yeah. act them out. My younger sister is a puppeteer. Oh, wow. And she's made her life. The way I've made my life through theater and story, she's made her life through puppetry. The involvement with theater uh, manifested itself into your uh, collegiate studies. Well, I dropped out of college, my first college, which was Antioch, which is a hippie school in Ohio, mm -hmm. and um, was a great school, but not for me. What I learned at that school was that I can make decisions. Seriously, and my first decision is college is not right for me. Mm -hmm. So I, I dropped out and I joined a street theater company. In Ohio or would you move back to the East to Coast? To Chicago. You moved to Chicago. Funny, I moved to Chicago. Before you said street theater company, the first thing that came to my mind is I dropped out and joined a street gang. <laughs> 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 and I was like, all right, I like the way the story's going. Well, I'll tell you, we did have a lot of friends in street gangs. but I'm sure. You know, that was a whole... People were organizing street gangs then into political things. Yeah. This is the 70s. Um Chicago in the seventies had a lot of oh they still have gangs but there was this you know this strong desire to turn them into radical revolutionaries instead of radical revolutionaries now you have really really uh, concise Facebook rants <laughs> right <laughs> these these things are more yes, over time this is what this is what the organization has been replaced by they go can we get enough comments on this this post you right. know, and do and then much. it's really important yeah, and then do nothing about it. Yeah, well, it, it was different. How many of you were there in this uh, in this gang, in this troop? Well, it, was a, it really was a troop. It was about 15 of us that did awesome. different things. 
And that's when I started doing some directing. And, and I eventually got to a point where I took classes. David Mamet and William H. Macy started a theater in Chicago, and I took classes with them. And I realized that I wanted more. So I came to New York, and I went to NYU to their MFA program because they then accepted bachelor's and master's. We were on the same program. And I did that, and then I got out, and I realized I didn't like the acting world. I wasn't tough enough. You weren't tough enough? Well. You, you know what that means. The acting world is not for the faint of heart. No, it isn't. And I like to control my destiny. You know, I mean, it was like when my street theater days, I wrote and I directed and I acted. Yeah. And I you seem like a pretty resilient lady. I'm not sure if tough, uh, if you can well, take it at all. Emotionally. And they, and, yeah, because t- toughness, it, you know, people can be tough in all different ways. Yeah. The guy that can come and, you know, can go into, be a fighter and step into the ring and have a guy go at him, you know, toe to toe. He be, might not be able to deal with an emotional problem when he goes back home with his wife. So everybody has different types of toughness. You know, emotionally, my feelings would be hurt. And I would not be able to get over it if I didn't get a role or something. And so I decided, I don't know how it is, I I just started teaching. So I found a theater company. They liked me, and they were doing stuff, and they got me to do something with their kids. And this is the way I work. I didn't like how they were doing it. I like them, but I didn't like how they were doing it. I couldn't tell them directly, but I taught the way I wanted. And then I went to the 92nd Street Y and proposed a project. When was that? That was in the early 80s. And I was there for four years. And I, it was, and that's where the, the, the clips are going to come from. How did you end up finding those? Uh, I mean, was that something that was like a, you knew that those existed, obviously, or, did, or how long did it take you to find them when you were in touch with me about this show? Well, you know, first I was looking for my father's yes. songs, and then I got embarrassed because I had promised you something, and... Well, you know, that's how I am. If I want to, if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. For God's sake. So <laughs> You made good on the promise. I did. I did. So, I don't know. I was going through my CDs, and it's like this thing. And it's the first show that I wrote with kids. And at that time, I thought I was making it up, and I'm, I'm not sure if I was. I worked with the kids. I, I said, I don't need a script. I don't need anything. We're going to write our own shows. Because that's what we had done in theater, and that's what I did in acting school. We did a lot of theater creation, you know, working with actors and a director. You collaborated. So I got the kids to collaborate, and we did two shows a year except my last year, which I did a really long thing, and we got in some kind of grant for. Um, and what I did is I started not with the first show, but with the, after the second. I brought in musicians, friends of mine who were professional musicians, and lighting people, and dance. So I brought in a whole troupe to work with the kids. During your uh, time at the 92nd Street Y, you were involved in more than just directing. You were sort of fostering this ability for kids to be able to learn how to tell stories um, in a way that was... In theater. Yeah, within theater. theater. I mean, basically, I learned. The 92nd Street Y was great. I'd, I'd done some teaching... In Chicago, I'd actually worked with gangs, gang mm-hmm. members who were going back to school, but not in a regular school. And we created plays with them. And I, I became an after-school teacher. 
that was how I made my living because in those days, my theater didn't pay anything. I mean, I learned that I was a good teacher. I didn't really quite all know all the ins and outs of handling stuff, that stuff. I learned on the way. But what I did get in working in this first youth theater was what I realized was that the voice of the kids was the voice I wanted to hear. I didn't want to hear them doing somebody else's words. I wanted their words, their opinions, and their point of view. It's really fascinating to hear that because I grew up doing uh, youth theater in Woodstock. Beth Lipton was the artistic director, and she mostly borrowed from other works uh, for us to perform. Um, you know, a lot of the, the staples, the classics. But we did have an opportunity every now and again to create our own work. There was a summer program. But then there was also a thing that we did uh, that ended up making it to New York City uh, in 1999, the Fringe Festival. Uh, we did a original work that we helped all write, all of us. There was like, so cool. There was like 20 of us that all got together and put together an original show called Journey to Friday. Um, I actually did get a chance to talk about it um, on VHS Presents and showed a clip of me in nerd regalia of, uh, you know, wireframe glasses and uh, waist-high pants and a whistle around my neck because I was supposed to play the hall monitor. We were, all, we were really <laughs> given the freedom to create these characters and create our, di- our own uh, dialogue. Um, I imagine there must have been such amazing opportunities uh, with the kids that you were uh, creating the shows. I mean, we'll hear it in a, uh, in, obviously in a little bit. I am curious, though, what ended up happening with the children of whom came up through your program? Were they inspired to create works of their own later on? Are they storytellers? Are they actors? You know, I don't know where most of them are because then I went to Chicago for a little while. Sure. And I worked in Chicago actually one summer and then tried to do it again. And then I changed paths and became a storyteller. One of them got a hold of me. I had become a storyteller. I was performing at the Jewish Museum. And this kid is sitting in the back. And he's just waiting for me. And I'm like, I go over to say something. Turns out, actually, I have a picture. I have a book here with some pictures. Oh, wow. (laughs) I just, you know, it was my favorite kid. You are all my favorite kids if you're hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> but he's the one who also, you know, connected with me. He, his dad was the education director, and he was feeling like he needed a creative outlook. Turned out that he was now on the board of the Jewish Museum, and he said that everywhere he went, he dedicated things to me. And, you know, for a while he was in theater, he directed. And then finally, I mean, we have reattached ourselves somewhat. I was in his wedding. So it's a doing, lot of love that, he, that, that you giving back, he's giving back to you. I love these kids. They were so smart. They were multicultural. I mean, it was, it was the 92nd Street Y kids and some kids from Dalton from the schools. But a lot of them came from, what is it, Central Park East. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, it's a lottery school. So we had all different kinds of kids, and they worked beautifully. I don't know if I talked as much. I feel like I have on the show before about the different productions that I've done when I was in high school. Because I had two different directors when I did plays in high school. And one director that I had, uh, Quinn Strassel, 
he would take our advice at every turn. He would ask us if he came to a spot when he would he would look at the way the scene was. He goes, there's something that you feel would make the scene better. And we were doing projects that were found. But, you know, we did Shakespeare and he would go through every single line and it, we would sit down and explain every single bit of the Shakespearean speech so that every actor in the play knew exactly what you were saying because so many people just sort of regurgitate that speech. And then we had another director after that. And of course, I don't remember her name because I, you know, she was a terrible director and she wanted to do the play exactly as it was written and not change anything. It wouldn't take any of our advice. And the play felt really flat. And everyone that watched, I remember after the fact said, man, this lady does not know what she's doing. What happened to that guy? And I said, well, he went on to greener pastures. You know, he went back to go to school, back to, um, I want to say Michigan State so he could get his, his, uh, his graduate's degree. So I know he got us on the kids now, too. So if you're out there, Quinn Strassel, the same way, put me on the right path. I called my old chorus director. He was so thrilled. I told him I'd based my life on him, on his advice. And he was great. Okay, so here's Raphael. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can't see it, but uh, maybe we'll, we'll try and put it on the website. Uh, this is a, a photo of uh, your children acting in this uh, program. And in, it's got a lovely set. I get, was that set designed by the children as well? Yeah. Amazing. I mean, the kids, I don't think in the early 80s people were doing this much. I started to take classes at NYU's master's program in creative drama. She said, write about it. I said, no. Those days it was, no, I don't need to write or document anything. Silly me. Because <laughs> um, we did really good work. And here's another one, the same one I'll show you. Look at that. That's special. We'll have to put these up there just so that uh, everybody can get their perspective. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we have so much sounds to uncover from the 80s with Robin Beatty. Because we're keeping it gravy here on Radio Free Brooklyn. A. Why did you have to make it Canadian at the end? <laughs> this is Lost and Round Radio Free Brooklyn. Robin Beatty here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Hey guys, if you're inspired by what you've been hearing this hour, you can contribute your found audio to Lost and Rewound at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. We've been chatting with Robin about her upbringing and her comings up in the world of teaching and storytelling and being involved with uh, children and collaborating with them on projects of, of a theatrical variety. And that is where we come to this week's submissions. And they are from the 1980s. Exactly what year from the 80s? I cannot remember. 
And I and I thought about it. And I thought I should know, but I think I didn't want to look back. The eighties were probably nineteen, maybe the eighties. Yeah, the eighties were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let, let's roll back. You started working at the ninety second Street Y in what year? Uh, that's I can't remember. You can't remember I at can't all. Can't remember. I mean, it was probably nineteen eighty. Sure. Yeah, I, it was nineteen eighty or eighty one. Okay, I wasn't born yet. It's all good. I, I get know, it. I know. I get. I. Uh, <laughs> There's so many places where I talk to people who haven't been born yeah, yeah, by yeah. my stories. Let me well, t- I've got more stories like that. That only that happens when I when I talk to people a little younger than me about like Nickelodeon. They're like, "What do you mean Nickelodeon?" And it's, huh? like, the, it's like the only thing I'm like, I'm just trying to connect to you on something that isn't SpongeBob because there are ways it's possible. So, so we have a, a few. Uh, we have a number of clips, a handful of clips here. They're all pretty short, uh, but you obviously are gonna have to give us some context because. They're all different parts of a show called As I Was Saying. Is that correct? So my concept was I had never written a show by myself before. They say nothing about written with kids. And honestly, I had no idea what they were capable of. Um, I'd worked with high school students. And all of a sudden, I'm working with, what, 8 to 12-year-olds. So um, I said, let's just do something about your day. And we'll start at the beginning. Very good place to start. You know, right. <laughs> when you read, you begin with ABC. Um, we're, we're nerding out here. Sorry. Yeah. That was a little... <laughs> um, <laughs> little theater nerd shit. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so this is called Waking Up. Uh, so, any context we need for this? So, right. So basically, what I mean, the way I worked with it is we did improvs. I knew how to set up improvs. And um, recording quality is really bad. It was recorded with... A tape recorder, like one of those old ones, you know, like a cassette tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. tape recorder. Perfect. So I, oh, not, I know. not terrible. No. It's just it's just... Lo- he loves tapes. He's like, he's <laughs> there's here. something about the sound. How, and how giddy he's, he got. He's so giddy. He's like, oh, so you're saying it was a tape, eh? <laughs> I love it. I right. love it. <laughs> Let's take a listen. That really was a group effort. That was wonderful. <laughs> How long did it take you to wake up in the morning when you were a child? I was up immediately. You got you got you were getting up. Oh, I that's... I was such a bad morning kid. I had to be woken up so many times. I love to get up and do things. I when I was in high school, I used to get up at five. What? I would study. Who are you? Right, crazy person. <laughs> Trust me, I went to college. 
I started getting into drugs and, yeah. and drinking and uh-huh. and donuts. Tell me this: you Are, were you, did you actually go to college? I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I did. I went to acting school finally. Sure, that's, that, not that's the donuts. Well, listen, I, I get I get a bit uh, at five a.m. now. Well, okay, I like it now. Same, I sleep like four hours a night. That's awful, but at the same time, but I, I applaud you getting... I catch some naps. Yes. Catch well, a nap or two. Some people say that's good. I am impressed uh, hearing else? that, getting up for the bus from Woodstock to Poughkeepsie in middle school in, you know, what was like something like 6.57 or something. I had to be down so that the bus could pick us up, and it would be an hour and a half bus ride. So wow. I would have to get up at that's 6. a long ride. But I needed, I needed assistance to get up because there was no way I was going to be able to get up. I was terrible at waking up in the morning. I was very good at pretending that I was getting ready. <laughs> I, I would like i would like i would i would figure out that like i could do this like half sleep half awake thing where i'd like okay let me get a shirt and put like one arm through it and then if i hear my mom coming down the hallway i'll poke up in bed and just make sure that my eyes are open for like the moment she's walking past the door and then the, when she's right past the door i'll just lay back down yeah and then she, i know she's gonna be coming back so i'll put another arm in and i'll like put it over like half my torso That's and then so funny <laughs> this is, you, you guys were from the uh, more of the city area. I guess the Jersey Shore isn't too close, but even so, like with snow days, for example. Oh, I um, snow days. I don't know how often you got them, Jimmy, but getting snow days upstate was a thing. The school that I went to, uh, Poughkeepsie Day School for middle and high school, they were notorious for being very stingy about the snow days because they really couldn't afford to just cancel school if there was only just like a little bit of snow on the ground. So they would continue having school, you know, even it might be like a two hour delay. Like they would never close necessarily. It would take a lot to say, okay, like no buses can like theoretically go on the road because it's going to be too icy. So then we'll close it. But even so, if I had the chance to uh, get a snow day, I would be up in the morning and I'd just be praying, be like, please, don't give me an hour and a half bus ride this morning, please. Hour and a half is so long. The alternative was is that if we miss the bus, one of them has to schlep me all the way an hour into Poughkeepsie from Woodstock on the highway, and that was not really what they wanted to do. For, Fair enough. For snow days for me, I remember that they would only give them when we either got pounded with a blizzard or they thought we were going to get a blizzard and nothing happened. We, oh, get, we get all those classic. mistaken those mistaken. The red herring, days. classic snowstorms. A lot of those. A lot of those, I remember. But... I do remember getting snow days and being able to run up to Prospect Park because I lived right down the street from Prospect Park and like running up to the hills and doing all the sledding and being making it was a very, very fun and exciting time. I remember I even remember that the most exciting of those times was when my mother wanted to go out sledding with me once and she managed to sprain her ankle while we were sledding because she had the idea of all people, that it'd be a hilarious if we would dive off of the sleds, like, <laughs> down, go as we're going down the hill. It wasn't my idea, it was her idea. Oh my, God. my mother, who's becoming a pastor. <laughs> wow. And then she sprained her ankle, and then some strapping guy was walking along and, like, carried her out so, like, we could get to the hospital or something like that, like, in the middle of the snowbank. Because like, we didn't know when it's, we'd have cell phones. It was before those days, you know? What a depressing day off. Yeah, I remember laughing at her. <laughs> It sounds like fun, actually. She did. She wasn't really like hurt. I remember that she was hurt where she couldn't walk on it, but she wasn't like in anguish, uh, you know. Yeah, that so is it was just funny. it was a silly situation. This next clip says skipping school. Uh, I think the snow day transitions well into skipping school. Anything we need to know about this, or I guess we can probably talk about it after. No, but it, basically, the, the, these clips are all in order. And again, 
The kids came up with all of this, Perfect. including the order. Interested in what we're about to hear. Let's do it. So, what are you going to do in school today? All the same old stuff. The readings, the math, some singing, some history. All the same stuff that we do all the time. I hate to go to school with lousy lunches and lousy teachers. It makes me bark. Well, yeah, the classroom is so big, no one knows if you're there. bullet holes you know it's a very that's a very fair thing to say you got crime everywhere baby but do you got pizza like this you know you got people (laughs) what are you gonna do what are you gonna go you gonna go over there to the middle of nowhere have crime and then you got nothing else to show for oh goodness you know but you know what it was funny that this made me think of because they were talking about like oh schools and like the classes are too big and this and that i remember everyone has had those gripes growing up Mm -hmm. in school and, you know, usually it was teachers that didn't care. I found that was the thing that really got me disengaged is the moment that they didn't respect or didn't care about me. I didn't care about the class, like, whatsoever. And in those classes, I was always looking for an opportunity to either make trouble or to get out of them. And one thing- You would have been my favorite student. <laughs> I, was, yeah, I, was, I was exactly that. I was always the favorite student or the least favorite student of the teachers. And typically, the teachers that were the good teachers, were I was the favorite. And the bad teachers, I was the least favorite. That's what, always what it ended Funny up Funny how happening. that works. Huh? Yeah. And, um, but I remembered something recently is that I had this, like, this ace in the hole they got out of class that always worked. And I now realize what it is. And I was like, that's so ridiculous that I just thought this was hilarious when I was a kid. I have uh, celiac disease and lactose intolerance. So when I was a kid, I used to have a lot of stomach problems. And I'd be like, oh, stomach's acting up. I got to get into class. And I'd be like, later. And I would like go leave for like 20 to 30 minutes. Like, this is so hilarious. I'd just be in the bathroom 
you guys enjoy class i'll be pooping <laughs> and it was very funny to me and people also thought it was hilarious but i like would actually go to the bathroom i wouldn't like go pretend to go i actually had to go so when they would like be josh and you'd be in like oh remember that time that you were always going to the bathroom yeah, and you're like, like yeah that that, they're that like, was a thing they're like good one dude good 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 plan and i was just like yeah and then now i'm just like wow i lived just a somewhat tortured <laughs> did you know you had celiac back then no i do remember was that. it even I, a thing back then i mean i don't i don't remember it being a thing and i do remember a teacher bringing up to me the fact that i went to the bathroom so much and that it was a problem and that i was like doing poorly in class because of it and i in my i just made up i was like sir i have ibs i said to him and he was like, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. Because I knew that if you had if like a, some sort of illness or something, they couldn't hold it against you. But I actually had something wrong. I just, my parents, me, we know no one like thought to look into it. And my mother has celiacs, but she only found out about it when I graduated from college, similarly. It's interesting because I got diagnosed with ADD when I was in middle school, but my dad didn't get diagnosed until way later after that. Uh, love how like it sort of goes in reverse. Like it's not the parent who gets diagnosed first; it's the the child, and then it's discovered. Oh, okay, well then there's a rhyme and reason for this. <laughs> it's genetic. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that I incorrectly never got diagnosed with ADD, and that was one reason why. Similarly, I couldn't be contained in class unless yeah, yeah. I had stuff to do because I was very high achieving. Yeah, and if I didn't have something to actively work my brain, I just would lash out basically were any of your children at uh this program did they have any special needs at all not that i you know know of but looking back on that absolutely there was one girl talk about who could not be contained who could not focus who was always getting in other people's eyes hair nose whatever sure you know there were kids like that i mean i think those are the kids who are often attracted to theater you know or kids who because they can use their imagination. They can use their imagination. They can move. I mean, I figured out when I worked with some of the younger ones also that if there was a problem, someone was acting out, I just you couldn't do this today. I would just wrap my arms around them and hold them quietly. And that calmed kids down. And I made the connection that if it was me, because I could imagine acting out, that would have calmed me down. So yeah. I think you, yeah, you learn from your kids or from what you're. Well, you never know you that know. that child may have never been hugged ever. I'm sure that kid was punished all the you time. You know, because I remember personally, uh, and this is a somewhat, it's a, it's a similar but somewhat disconnected story. But I went with um, with my father to Japan when I was young, and we met a friend of his in Japan that he'd known here in the states, and then she'd gone back home. And when we met her. She was super excited and really enamored with American culture, and wanted us to like teach her just little things that she wouldn't know. And one thing that when we were leaving. She went to bow, and I said, no, let's not bow in the U.S. You know, we, we can hug, and I'll hug you because you've wow. shown us so much kindness, and you've done so much, and I want to show you this. And she didn't know what it was. She'd never embraced someone, and she was in her 50s. She'd never embraced someone like that before. And when I hugged her, and I gave her a big hug, and after I let go of the hug, I could see there was tears in her eyes. Mm. And I could see she was holding back tears because I know also in Japan that it's not a cool thing, especially around someone that it's like a formal more setting to cry around them. And she told me afterwards, she's like, that was one of the most amazing things I've ever felt. She's like, you do that a lot? And I said, yeah, we do. That. I do that with people all the time. People I don't even like that much, I'll do it too. 
because sometimes I just want to give them that human connection too. Mm. And it's just like, to me, it's a nicer thing. And sometimes some people don't want it, but I like to be a hugger because I know that some people don't have that all the time. And sometimes it's something that you need. You know, one of the things about the kids I've worked with is unless kids are really far out on the, some spectrum, I don't identify them. Mm-hmm. I, I try to identify their strengths and their weaknesses. They used to not diagnose anybody. Right. I mean, of course, theater people, we all have ADD or yeah, something yeah, like sure. that or, or ADHD. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm like that. People have told friends of mine have said, oh, yeah, I'm ADD. You are, too. It's like, we connect. <laughs> we should probably listen to the next clip. We have. Yeah. We, we, we still have to keep going here. Sure. Once upon a time, my grandmother went on a trip to see her mother who was sick. Um, she was in a, a plane. Well, yes, the trip was so so. And she was the only one there. Well, there was eight more people. And, and the jet needed gas. And for Oh, I, I thought that first that was a girl, but no. That that was a strong New York accent for that age. I could hear the accent, too. That was super strong. Well, you, the first when you said it was a girl, I was like, I don't know. This, no. chick, this chick is tough. <laughs> it's Raphael. You know how grandmas do. I love it. That's it's... what my family sounds like. That is That was to me was like. Which, now, which side of your family? So my mother's side of the family, which is uh, is Puerto Ricans from the, from the South Bronx. Okay, so this was a kid. This is a Puerto Rican from... East Harlem. Exactly. It's funny because I asked my mother, I said, I asked her once when I was a kid, I said, hey, mom, are you from the Puerto Rican part of the Bronx? And she goes, you mean the Bronx? (laughs) (laughs) She goes, when I was a kid, the Bronx was Puerto Rican. That's what it was. (laughs) I was like, fair enough. That's crazy. You guys know Michelle Carlo, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, she has a show here for Shada Agua on Ray for Brooklyn. Yeah, she is from the Bronx. She's a famous uh, redheaded Puerto Rican, as she calls herself. Redheaded Puerto Ricans, it's such an interesting breed. They're they're all around. I'm telling you, it's like Pokemon. You're like, there it is, catch it. (laughs) Oh, my God. But most of them are dyed. She's natural. She's natural. with freckles too. With she's adorable. I love her. I got she, um, do you hear? And I love you all. I love all of you out there. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna have to have Michelle on the show. I know that she has some mixtapes that she has to offer. So we're gonna take her up on that offer in the new year for sure. That was wonderful though. I I loved hearing that. I want to hear what this next one is going to be too. And this one is the French and the English and friends. Should we just play it? Yeah. I like to create chaos. That's the truth. Shoot. I don't like my friends pushed around. Want a rumble? Stop it! Quebec, 1950. That's where my mother is from. Her name is Anna Anderson Giffen, and this is what she told me about living there. See, the French and the English did not like each other. They never got along. The English always said to the French, Frenchie soup and Johnny Kay makes a Frenchman's belly ache. And the French did the same. English pea soup and Johnny Kay 
makes an Englishman's belly ache. But they both called after her. She gave her name because her hair was red. They called her Redhead Diva Bed. Wonderful. Can you imagine if, as that was even wonderful. as a teacher on the first day of school, a student came and looked at me and you said, "I like to create chaos." <laughs> oh my god, I couldn't, I couldn't contain myself. That was wow. That was amazing. Be a crazy year. <laughs> so all those, okay, that that one deserves some context. He's just creating songs in general in some kind of like sing songy taunt of sorts. I don't, you know, I was trying to remember where that came from, and I'm wondering if, I mean, this was long long time ago so i don't think i've kept some scripts yeah i don't know if i have that one though i can almost see it in front of my face like the yellowed paper yeah i mean it's such such a weird thing for kids to latch on to i mean i the french and british yeah famously hate each other for a long time but like you know these so weird half of these kids come from very intellectual families sure where and they went to central park east most of them, which was a school that really taught, talk about context. It talks about where you are, what's happened before, and how you are there in it, at the same time giving you the opportunity to be creative and make a lot of the choices in how and what you learn. It was incredibly advanced for them to be queuing into that it's from at that age. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it reminded me, because... In the in the U.S. being such a young nation, we don't have these these ancient rivalries with other countries that go back to some war that we fought a thousand years ago that we'll like never forget. And like no matter what, we really dislike them. Like because I was just watching this program, and it's a uh, I, I love these human obstacle course shows because I like to waste my time. <laughs> it's like Ultimate Beastmaster, and they have all these different countries and they do it in an Olympic style where they actually have broadcasters from each nation and they're watching the, the, the athletes perform, but they're all broadcasting in their own languages and then they'll translate it. But they're, some of the countries really hate each other, and it was the it was Italy and France. And every time that the French would be doing something, they're like, "We're going to jinx them." The French athlete is coming. Come, put the jinx, put the jinx, ah, the jinxy, yeah. And then the the Italians running, and the French are like, "Uh, oh, the Italian is going. We hope he does very well." And the Italians are like, "Oh, they said he's he's going to do good." Oh, anytime they say they like him, they're trying to jinx us. <laughs> <laughs> Put the anti jinx, the anti jinx, and he's like, and he's calling the woman. He's like, "Witch Bianca, you use the witch power." She's like, "Ay, ay, ay." And I didn't realize all this ancient, like these ancient rivalries, but also I didn't realize how like superstitious Italian people were. And I learned it through. Oh my god! This 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 t- television program. Me. You know? <laughs> I'm not even Italian, and I know that. I, 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 you know, hey, you grew up in Brooklyn. What are you talking about? You should know. Oh well, I mean, Italians to me, they were superstitious about pizza. <laughs> and, and that's you know, true. Uh, that's you know, true. don't let you know, the 
it touches the ground, you got to get a new slice. No, no, no two-second rule. It's cheap. It's too sticky. <laughs> we have time for one more <laughs> clip, and it's entitled Leprosy, quote-unquote, Leprosy, and Being an Adult. You know what, guys? What? what? I've got leprosy. Every day there's less of me. It's me quick. There goes my upper lip. Well, I'm not half the man I used to be. Because I've got leprosy. <laughs> Robin, these are gold. How old are these children again? They range eight from... 8 to 12, and mostly around 8, 9, this and 10. brilliance. You remember all those times when you were a kid and your mom was like, Hey, little Elon, go to the store, give me a pack of smokes. <laughs> get me, me a two-four. <laughs> I could have done anything in this class. I could have brought in a play, but I thought, oh my God. I mean, I just saw it. The kids are gold. And when I work with kids and I have to do theater, that's what I do. I've... I don't think I've ever. No, I've never brought in a play. Never. Plays, no. I well, mean, that leprosy song was pretty ingenious. <sighs> Got to say, that yeah. was funny. That was that was really funny. That's but, that's something that I could see in a Monty Python esque sort of situation. I don't easily. even think I knew what leprosy was before I was twelve <laughs> years old. So uh, credit to that the the, the, the kids singing that. I don't. I think it was the tall kid. I can't remember his name. He was so drop dead funny. I mean, I went to NYU where improv was big. You know, that was like sort of the strength of a lot of the people. I mean, it was, to a certain extent, it was a program that was supposed to create an alternative to Juilliard, which I didn't know. I probably would have liked to have gone to Juilliard if I'd known. Many reasons why I became a storyteller, but one of the things I love is, though there are some things I memorize, not much. Because I'd rather my own voice come through. And that's what I do when I work with people. I now teach seniors storytelling in a very structured way. And, you know, it's just each one of them. Everybody has their own voice. All I have to do at this point is help people polish them. And give them the ability to have the confidence to speak with their, with the their, their, their own truth. And right now, I mean, we're in a place in the country where 
I, I want to say something stupid, like people of goodwill need people need to speak out because we're going to find ourselves. Yeah, you have a wonderful outlet, a show that is all women show that you're working on right now, right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's called No, We Won't Shut Up. It's a show of diverse women, black, white, Asian, Jewish, Christian, etc. Well, there's only six, but I think as we go on, the cast might revolve. But each woman is telling stories of something that happened to her or something that she knows about that's deeply upsetting that she may not have talked about before. So my story, for example, is about uh, wage theft. How I worked in a bar that was stealing our money. And so I called the National Labor Relations Board. I won't give it all away because it took a dramatic turn that I wasn't expecting. Another woman talks about being sexually harassed by a cop. Angel talks about when she realizes she's Asian. Mm -hmm. Another woman talks about how she realizes that she's been brought up and is indeed a bigot. She tells the story at the moment of, oh, my God, I can do something different. What's the status of that show? And and you have. Well, we did it once. We did it um, this past summer at Mm -hmm. the stand up, the speak up, rise up. Or the rise. I don't. Yes. uh, Festival. Asher Novak put that together. Correct. Wonderful guy who is. Puts all sorts of things together. He wants to give people a voice to do things that they may not do, people without, you know, outlets for it. So I put that together. The Brooklyn Arts Council is interested in bringing it into high schools. Michelle Carlo designed a shirt for it. We have a logo. So we're going to just like try and now put it together in small ways. And I want to take it out to high schools and maybe some festivals and colleges and maybe just other storytelling venues. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I would love to hear uh, more about uh, where the next uh, venue will be for that so that we can uh, all here on Ready for Brooklyn support yeah. that. I mean, I mean but more than ever now, especially going into this new year, now that we've become more enlightened and uh, empowered uh, by women's voices, it needs to be heard and seen. Um, so people can hear more about that and find out more information about that on your website as well. Um, or where else? My website's it. it <laughs> I have update. not updated it in so long. Um, you can find out about it at, at the website, or you can just email me. Robin Beatty at AOL.com? At Gmail. At Gmail.com. At you, AOL. You've joined. I actually have an AOL account from when we got it for the kid. That's what I use for all, like, my political email mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and stuff, things I don't really want to hear from, but Fair every enough. now and then I look. But I'm at Gmail or iCloud. And people could also look up uh, on Facebook. You have the Beatty House, Beatty House Storytelling, and that's B A D Y Beatty House Storytelling Concert. Um, and I also have a website for Nancy Drewinsky. Okay, and that's uh, NancyDrewinsky dot com. Beautiful, Robin Beatty here on Lost and Rewound. You are so wonderful, and thank you for being here. This yeah, week. thank you so oh much for God. coming by. This was a perfect end to twenty seventeen. Well, thank you. And thank you for being so patient. Of course. Oh, my God. We'll be back in the new year with uh, more exciting new sounds of the yesteryears. And you feel free to listen to all of our past episodes on Podomatic at lostandrewound.podomatic.com. In the meantime, this is Jimmy Hoffman. This is Alon Danziger. Thank you so much for listening to A Lost and Rewound right here on Radio Free Brooklyn.
you know, Cooper Lake, I guess. Not yeah, around like, you know, on the lakes and like, you know, what? I'm trying to think of the name. It's like it's Sackett Lake is the mm-hmm. it was the name of it. And that's by Monticello, et cetera, and uh white uh whatever it's called damn it thanks for the geography lesson fuck it fuck it woodstock <laughs> where woodstock was 